This is the Partnership for the Arts talk show, where we talk art. Welcome to Where We Talk Art. This is your host, Victor Gartner, recording at Northville Farm Heritage Center in Centerville, Nova Scotia. Today, we will be talking to a man of many talents. He is an author, a blacksmith, a traditional blacksmith, and a consultant to the team working at the Oak Island in Nova Scotia. I will welcome our guest after this very brief message. This is Partnership for the Arts. Come join us as we explore the world of art. You can find us on our Facebook page at Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show. Or you can find us on our new website at pftatalkshow.org. PFTA Talk Show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. We are back. Now, several weeks ago, I contacted our guest telling him about where we talk art, and I also told him that we have recorded nearly 100 episodes but have not yet featured a blacksmith. He gracefully accepted my invitation to be our guest today. Carmen Legg, welcome to Where We Talk Art. Well, thank you, Victor, for inviting me for this talk. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, we are at the Northville Farm and Heritage Center in Centerville, Nova Scotia. Could, could you please tell us about this place? In uh, 2001, there was a bunch of uh, men and women who were basically retirees, and they wanted to preserve some of the old stuff that they had, their families had, and the community had. One of the uh, members of the group had 15 acres here in Northville, which mm. is called Northville because of the North family that used to live here. So his name was Lawson Soller, and his wife Pauline donated this 15 acres for us to house uh, over time. You know, we started off with a hall, and then we uh, put a piece onto the hall. This is we the hall we're sitting in right This now, is the it? hall we're sitting in now, yes. We do dinners and suppers, and we have presentations here, dances, and so on and so forth. And uh, over the years, we raised money to put up another building, and then another building, and another building. Today, we have the Heritage Hall. We have the Bentley Building, which is the, one of the original buildings in the neighborhood that was moved here. We have a transportation building. We have a planting and harvesting building. We have a sawmill, blacking shop, cooper shop, windmill, and we uh, host festivals and events here that sort of has something to do with uh, rural events and preserving the life of, of history from about, um, basically we focus on 1916 to about 1960. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a lot of horse and ox powered equipment, but at that time we also have tractors coming along and we have a lot of tractor equipment too, and uh, some of them would cross over. But, uh, you know, we just thought it was important that we preserve some of these items and some of the stories, some of the uh, uh, history for future generations here in uh, Northville. Right. And now you have a particular job. Well, um, I do a variety of different things. Um, uh, in the past, I was the director of the uh, center. I put on demonstrations and I do a little bit of work in the blackmail shop here as well. But we have a lot of uh, events that blacksmithing would be a part of, right. and I would demonstrate in the blackmail shop. 
I was also curator of the place for a few years. A lot of the items that you see here were set up with my vision in mind and how I wanted it displayed. We don't have a farmhouse or a kitchen on site, so in the hall here tends to be household items. Mm -hmm. And then in the other buildings, you'll have more of a farming uh, item as well. Right. So basically, I'm a tour guide and a demonstrator in the blacksmith shop. A man of many talents. Well, that's what I've been told, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, think you have I to enjoy be. that title. I, I, I consider myself a master of only one skill, and that's blacksmithing but do many other things as well. I also enjoy woodworking. Oh, you do? I do, yes. What kinds of things do you make when you're woodworking? Well, I'm not much of a carpenter. I cut off a board two or three times, it's still too short. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I like making uh, wooden handles, you know, uh, yokes, uh, carved wood and uh, different designs. Not so much a, a you know hammer and nail type of person. Mm -hmm. I like shaping wood. Do, do you do any uh, wood turning? Yes, I have a lathe and I turn out uh, chair rungs and chair legs and hammer handles, very spin tops, and uh, I make a lot of uh, rolling pins. All right, I make a lot of rolling pins. I enjoy making rolling pins in the winter. A variety you, of different things. Have you ever tried bowls or vases? I made a couple of buckets. Mm -hmm. That one solid piece of wood, and that was enjoyable. Um, one time the uh, school chisel caught and hit me in the mouth. That wasn't very oh, uh, much fun, but you learn from those mistakes. I bet. A lot of people will ask me, uh, how many times do you get burnt in the blacksmith shop? And uh, you have to say every day. Every day you get burnt. But maybe only once a month, seriously. And the rest of the burns are only sting for a minute, and then you brush them off and continue on. But it's it, it has a little danger in when you're blacksmithing. When I worked at the Rossfire Museum, I had to wear a traditional costume. And in my time period, it meant that you had to wear uh, clothing that was extra long and extra fluffy and, and extra thick. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was very hot. Uh, in the wintertime, when the forage is going, uh, there's a little bit of heat there. Not nearly enough to keep you warm, so you have to have a wood stove nearby to help you. Uh, in the summer, you certainly don't need the wood stove. The forage is putting out the same amount of heat that it does in the winter. But when you're at the forge, you can imagine a 10-foot bubble all around the forge that it's hot, but it's dry air. Mm -hmm. So when you step outside in the hot human heat under the sun, it's really, really hot. But when you're working at the forge in the summertime, because you're in uh, an environment that's dry heat, it's not nearly as um, uh, uncomfortable as being outdoors. Do you have so, some kind of like vent o over the forge so that the hot air is forced up as opposed to going sideways? Most of my blackness shops here have a side draft, mm -hmm. which means the, the opening of the flue is not directly over the fire, it's on the side. Okay. So when I make a fire, I have to sort of get the heat started going up the chimney, and as the heat rises, it'll take all the smoke with it. So um, a lot of the heat will go up the chimney, but again, I need the heat to, to uh, um, heat up my metal before sure. I beat onto it, so I don't right. want to lose too much heat. All right. I understand that your dad was a blacksmith. No, my uh, no, he wasn't. No, my Ooh, father this wasn't. This is misinformation a, 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 on the internet. 
Well, yeah, there's a lot of information on the internet that's not right. But uh, no, my father's cousin was a blacksmith. He lived about a mile away, and I spent a lot of time there as a youth. And I played with it, you know, but I never thought that, you know, years down the road that I was going to be called upon to represent blacksmiths from that era and continue on with their traditional skills. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of glad that I do because, for one thing, it's, it's a dedication for me. I, I feel it's a dedication to the blood, sweat, and tears of the blacksmiths who came before me, provided communities to be built, provided families to grow. Uh, the blacksmith shop was like your hardware store. It was where you got your tooth pulled, where you got your hair cut. It's where I told you how to vote, you know, and so on. So uh, I want to represent that. And the best way to represent blacksmiths or blacksmithing traditionally or historically is to actually do it. Mm-hmm. and hopefully pass it on to the next generation, which is what I'm focused on now. I'm not so much focused on uh, producing, unless it's something that only I can produce, and I feel a chip on my shoulder to do so. But I'd rather teach people how to continue on with the, uh, the general skill of blacksmithing. And, and how do you do this? How do you do the teaching? I do workshops. People come uh, one, two, or three days uh, I prefer them do three days. Um, they come to one of my blacksmith shops and they uh, spend some time with me and we'll learn the basics of blacksmithing. If they have a particular um, sideline of blacksmithing they want to learn about, then we'll concentrate on that on the third day. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, we charge so much a day and uh, go from there. I've had very little, little experience working in a forge. When I was in high school... We had to do a project with the forge in metal shop. So I chose to make a chisel out of hex stock. And, and I thought it was beautiful. You know, I had it all polished up and everything, and I presented to my teacher. First thing he does is he lays it down on the table. And the blade of my chisel is not horizontal to the table. I had no idea that that was required nor was it even in the in the blueprint it, that just totally escaped me and i got a c oh <laughs> out of my chisel i was quite disappointed <laughs> when i'm making something i can see it before it's made i don't know what you call that but it, and i good I have good hand to eye coordination so uh you know nobody beats me at uh, washitas or darts or whatever but anyway um when I make an item, I I see uh, a line down the middle of it, mm-hmm. and I split it in half. So when I'm making a hook, we'll say, or, or, or a chisel or whatever, I will make each half to, to be the same, right? So I would assume that when you laid it down on the table, um, it wasn't in half. It was probably closer to the table. It maybe stuck out from the table. It wasn't parallel to the table, right? It wasn't parallel. No. So I kind of look at that and... and and I have OCD, so it has to be perfect. So the blade, the blade wasn't parallel to the table. It was kind of like, let's say this is the handle, the shaft. It's 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 running along the edge of the table, and the blade itself should have been parallel to to the top and bottom yes. of the hex. Yes, yes, I see and, what you and mean. It wasn't. Yeah. It was like a thirty degree angle. Yeah. Oh, now, wow. there, if you're sharing off a bolt, you want that. You want that. Mm-hmm. Maybe the teacher didn't realize he was using it for chair off bolts. Yeah, I should have told him that. <laughs> yeah, <I should. laughs> 
That's a special you, one, that is. You might have heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. So I understand that there was a, a gentleman that uh, kind of became a mentor for you that was... A couple of them, yes. When I first started at the Ross Farm as a blacksmith, the uh, old fellow that was there, his name was Roy Levy, he was ready to retire. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those crusty old fellows, you know, that didn't suffer fools. And uh, so I would sit there during my noon hour, and I had a whole hour. He only had a half hour. So uh, I would sit there and watch, basically watch. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'd get up and I'd watch a little closer, you know. He'd say, what are you doing down here? I was just watching. I'm interested. I'm just watching. So uh, every once in a while, I'd ask him a question about why he did it that way and so on and so forth. Well, that's the way it's been done for the last 400 years. We're not changing it now. (laughs) And, you know, you kind of uh, remember that. So then uh, I asked him, uh, uh, could he show me how to make something? And uh, he said, yeah, okay. Um, He had tried to teach people before how to do blacksmithing, but it was unsuccessful. But with me, he saw something and uh, he was say you make that and I'll come back in a couple of days and have a look at it and he would say that that's great you know this is no good you know you got to change this this here is okay you know and so on mm-hmm. and so over time uh, I uh, sort of made things that he would make uh, he was also making a lot of shoes and making horseshoes and ox shoes so I started making horseshoes and ox shoes horseshoes and ox shoes especially ox shoes is not easy you have to have a certain uh, knack for making uh, those shoes. And he had it, even though he was left-handed. Transferred that knowledge to me, and I continued on. There was also another um, uh, mentor. Uh, well, I should say the first uh, person, Roy Levy, taught me what to do. The second mentor taught me what not to do. So he would say, you know, this is the way you do it. And, and then I would find out later that, no, that's not the way you do it. Hmm. So I learned from that as much as well. So that's like the first mentor, one-third, the second mentor, two-thirds, and the other one-third I learned on my own, you know, by videos, uh, YouTube, Hmm. books, um, other uh, blacksmith shops, other courses. Uh, There's also the Maritime Blacksmithing Association that a blacksmith can learn a lot. Uh, We also have a lot of visiting blacksmiths from other countries, and they would show me how they do it. Here in Nova Scotia, we are blessed because we have, since the 1600s, we have the influence of the blacksmiths from the French section, the German section, and the English section. So that's my specialty. Those three nationalities during the years 1600 to present. Each nationality had a little bit uh, different way of doing their blacksmithing. I tend towards the German style, but I use a lot of French style as well in my work. Well, I think, Carmen, this is going to be a good time for us to take a break. So, listeners, don't go anywhere. We are going to be back in just a moment. This is Lisa Gallucci, author, artist, and executive director of the Visual Art Center. I enjoy listening to Where We Talk Art. We are back, and we have been talking with traditional blacksmith, Carmen Legg. Now, some of you might be thinking, geez, I, I've heard that name before, Carmen Legg. 
isn't he the blacksmith on the Curse of Oak Island show? Yes, he is. Carmen, you've been a consultant with that show for a while, and I often am amazed how you could pick up a piece of metal that's been buried for over a 100 years. It's swollen with corrosion, and you tell them not only what it was supposed to be when it was produced, but when it was produced and maybe how it was produced. Yeah, I guess I have that talent. Eight, eight years ago, um, Doug Crowell, who uh, many people have seen on the show, he was the president of the local museum here in uh, Kempville. I think he was either associated with the show or he was starting to be associated with the show. Mm -hmm. They were finding a lot of metal uh, items, and they he came to me and he said, would you know anything about these metal items? And and I think they showed me probably a dozen, and I identified all dozen of them, and I told them how it was made, how it was used, how much it was used, and so on and so forth. Yes. So they were amazed, and they uh, kept asking me to uh, date these items and explain how they were made and how they were used and so on. And uh, you got to remember, the blacksmith was considered the first musician uh, in the, in the, in the world. A master smith will have the ability to look at an item, don't matter how old it is. Um, and in order to be a master smith, you have to be able to identify who made it, how it was made, what procedure was used to make it, how it was used. And from the damage onto it or the wear onto it, you can also say how much use is seen. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess, like I say, it's been eight years ago, and, and I still enjoy looking at the items. Uh, again, it doesn't matter how much crud is onto it. Now I will say that we have an XRF machine on the island that can um, sort of look at the items without the crud or see through the crud, and that helps a lot. But when I pick up an item... 95% of the time I can identify what it is right through the mud and the crud and the dirt mm -hmm. and stuff on there and so on. Now, they can also age items, can't they? Yeah, well, uh, the joke on the island is, is some items can be carbon dated, mm -hmm. some can be carbon dated. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, which is more accurate? Well, uh, again, over the last eight years, my uh, dating has... Uh, been comparable with scientific dating and, and it's pretty much uh, the same. Uh, sometimes I have to, uh, you know, stretch out my uh, range of dates yes. in order to cover the item. Sometimes I can specify it within five or ten years. And there are certain times from the 1600s to present that some blacksmithing procedures or some metalworking procedure or uh, iron and steel making change, so I can recognize uh, those as well. What do you think, or, or do, can you recall, was like the oldest metal object you you identified? What was the, the age of that? Probably five, six, seven years ago, I was shown a, uh, a swage, and the swage was used to sharpen rock drills. Did you say rock drills? Rock drills, yes. Uh, these were hand tools used to tunnel and mine in the ground, right. in the rocks and so on. Uh, this swage was a blacksmithing item used to sharpen them, keep them at the right angle and so on. Right. When I looked at it, I knew that it was very, very old. 
And that was back in the 1500s. Mid to late 1500s was the Swede. So that's the oldest item that I can recall ever being shown on the island. A lot of the viewers will see two of them, or they would have saw two of them. But it is actually two pieces of the same Swede that broke in two. Oh. Yes, so many, okay. a lot of viewers don't know that. But I let the cat out of the bag. So the 1500s, I mean, that, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, don't imply that that's when it was used. I'm just saying that's when the Swedes was made. Mm -hmm. um, after that, it was used on, on Oak Island. So how did you become so knowledgeable about such things as, oh, well, that's a Swedes and I can tell it's from the 1500s. I mean, that, uh, well, I don't think there are too many people that could do that. No, there's you know it's not a uh, university uh, course or a degree in uh, identifying metal items. No, a part of that comes from blacksmithing. You know, you have to make hooks. You have to make you have to make the items that they've been making since the 1600s. Uh, even up to the 1600s, a lot of the Roman items are the same today. Right? You have the same hooks. You have the same uh, things that you would use over a fire, you would have the same tools that you would use for farming and gardening, mm -hmm. mowing and grain and, and so on and so forth. In my own family, we used those same tools up to about 1970. So we didn't use tractors, we didn't, you know, have modern machinery. You, we used the old way, you used the pitchfork, the hand size, and so on. Right. So uh, there is a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of experience on mm -hmm. how these items were used. And, of course, you know what they are and what they're called. Right. Um, I, again, I, as I mentioned, I have OCD. I tend to get stuck on an item. I have to know what it is, mm -hmm. who made it, where it was used, how it was used, how long it was used. Uh, I have to know exactly what it is. And I belong to a lot of uh, museum societies, historical societies. Even in the hall there, if you look around, there's a lot of metal items here. Yes, there are. Uh, there's not one on the shelf. I don't know exactly what it is where it came from, what nationality it was, whether it was Acadian or whether it was German or Mi'kmaq or whatever. Um, I, I have to know. So I research and I research, and I'm a bookworm. Even though I do a lot of physical work in the blacksmith shop, I'm a bookworm. So um, a lot of my knowledge comes from the New England states, uh, England, mm -hmm. and Europe. You have identified a number of objects as hand-forged nails or, or spikes, mm -hmm. right? I, I just can't imagine years ago, before nails were mass-produced, that somebody had to make, by hand, every single one of those nails. I mean, if I want a nail today, I go over to one of those uh, you know, hardware stores or the big box stores, and uh, I grab a box that has 200 nails in it. And, and they're identical nails. Nobody made them by hand. They were somehow punched out. What was the, the routine for making a, something as simple as a nail for a blacksmith doing traditional blacksmith work? Well, again, when uh, iron nails were uh, used in the early to mid-1700s, uh, a blacksmith was called upon to make the nails. Of course, he would start with a bar, shape the bar into the shape of the nail he wanted, did he have to shape the bar, or did can he already buy? In the early years, he would have had to shape the bar to begin with. Mm. In the later years, bars were supplied generally with the shape that a blacksmith wanted, but he still had to uh, beat out the nails. 
Uh, the nails can, at that time, were either square or rectangular, but in the beginning they were square. So the blacksmith would take a, a piece of iron, taper it out square, taper it to the right length, and then he would insert it into a nail header, uh, beat a head onto the uh, nail, whether he wanted a rose head or a diamond head or a flat top or a uh, scupper or whatever. Uh, then he would flip the nail head over and knock the nail out into a collection bucket. Mm -hmm. And at, at that time, blacksmith, an average blacksmith, could do between 900 and 2,600 nails a day. Really? So that's... Some blacksmiths would specialize on making nails, and the ones that, you know, did that, they would get up towards 2,000 nails a day. But nail making was a sort of a routine, monotonous procedure, and your uh, striker would do that. Your apprentice mm -hmm. would make the nails, and he would probably start off with about 1,000 nails a day and then get better and better. I had no idea that a blacksmith could make that many nails in one day. That was average, yeah. yeah. Mm. When you're asked to consult at Oak Island, do they give you any heads-up information beforehand so that when you go there, you're not a little, you know, uh, confounded, saying, that, oh, geez, I, 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 I don't know. You have some, do you have some heads-up information so that you can go through some of your books if you need to and do a little research so that when you get there, you feel like you're, you're offering some information based on recent research? No, uh, Victor, when uh, they come to me or I go to the island, right. They have a collection of artifacts that were found in the previous couple of weeks or, or, or whatever. When I get ready to uh, talk about the items, I have five minutes to look mm. at the item, uh, see what it is. You know, all, all the information comes flooding in my head. Yes. And uh, of the dozen or so items or whatever they show me at that time, I have five minutes to determine exactly what it is and and, and 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 viewers also will see me on the show talking in a such a way that I'm thinking on my feet at the same time as, mm -hmm. as you're seeing me yes so uh, some viewers can probably uh, pick up on the fact that I didn't have any time to see these items before all right and and I, I about average I have five minutes to look at the items talk about the items and and um, have a little discussion about the items and where it might lead in the search for the treasure or whatever it may be that's there. Yes. So, no, I don't have any advanced uh, time to do research. One of the things that they seem to come up with a lot, other than the, the nails and spikes, which we just mentioned a little while ago, is um, oxen shoes. Often you, you say that this is a certain period because it's a certain style, and... My first question I always ask to myself is, why does an ox need a shoe? Well, uh, ox and horses are beasts of burden. Yes. Um, if they were left alone to walk on the ground and uh, in the grass and so on, the hooves would wear down the same as they grew, you know, the same speed as, yes. as it grew. But when you're asking a beast of burden to walk on gravel and rocks and in the woods, um, all day, every day, oh. their feet will wear down to the oh, point where they start to bleed. Okay. So you put iron shoes on there to protect the hoofs from wear down. Right. Also, while you're doing that, why not add corks or grips to the shoe so that they can get extra traction? If an ox or a horse feels that he might slip and fall, he won't. He wouldn't pull the hat off your head. 
But if he realizes he's got a good grip on the ground, then an ox can do about two or three times his own weight. Two or three times? Uh, uh, yeah, two or three times her own weight. And how much would, would a full-size ox weigh? A uh, lot of the uh, shoes that were discovered on the island were very small shoes. The smallest shoe I ever saw in Nova Scotia came from Oak Island. Mm. And in the beginning, back in the 1600s, the oxen were only maybe 1,000 pounds, 1,200 pounds. Uh, as the years went on, the oxen got bigger. So they, nowadays, it's common to have an ox that would weigh 2,000 pounds. Right. That tends to be the German influence uh, in the later years. Um, a 2,000-pound ox can pull 6,000 pounds. If you have them used in a team of two, which is very common, and then they can pull 10,000 pounds. I also want to mention that the largest shoe ever found in Nova Scotia came from Oak Island as well. No kidding. Most oxen wear a shoe from four inch up to um, five and a half, but there have been small shoes found on Oak Island and really, really large shoes found on Oak Island. Um, again, for whatever reason, I, I'll, I'll put it this way, I, I can't disclose the reason at this point, All right. but, but it will come out later. The team that's on Oak Island, they they have theorized that the oxen were needed because they were things that were very, very heavy that needed to be taken from the ships onto the, onto the island. Certainly oxen were uh, very hardy animals. They were able to do the task, very easy to keep. They could um, survive off of meadow grass or whatever was found uh, handy and nearby. They couldn't do it with horses because Horses generally are a very unhealthy animal. They have colic and heaves and spavins and distemper, and the list goes on and on <clears throat> uh, with the horse. But uh, also, it's very hard to transport a, a horse on a ship. They they tried it in the early 1600s, but they all died on the voyage. Oh with oxen, they, they tend to be okay with traveling on ships. So that's what, when horses arrived in 1670 in Nova Scotia. But the oxen were here many, many years before that. Very healthy animal, very strong animal, can survive off of very little uh, uh, low-quality food and, and strong and able to do the job. They could also do very intricate pulling in, in, in confined spaces or in mud or in seawater or whatever. Horses tend mm. to get spooked. And right. accident can happen, but with oxen, they can go into places and, and work and, and lift and they can uh, do all sorts of things. Uh, that's why oxen was needed on, on, on O'Connor. All right, from um, all of those things you just said, I could see why oxen was obviously the choice animal for that situation. Yeah, for the heavy lifting, the heavy hauling, uh, right. and so on and so forth. And you've become a, an expert on ox oxen and you've written a book. I have. There's a lot of books in libraries and bookstores that, that, that tells you all about horses, you know, how to mm -hmm. use horses, how to right. ride horses, but there's not many to uh, explain how to uh, to uh, look after oxen and use them. So I, I felt it was important to, to write a book. Um, there's only two or three books out there that, it, that are worth their salt talking about oxen, and I'm, right. I'm fortunate that mine is considered the Bible, or one of the Bibles of uh Ox training. So, um, thirteen years. Thank you. Thirteen years ago, I wrote a book called "Oxen: Their Care, Training, and Use," and uh, it's been very successful. And I'm very, very glad that I can pass the knowledge on. 
That's also another workshop that we're working on to teach people how to uh, use oxen. If you want to spend $100,000 and buy a tractor and another $100,000 to buy the equipment to go with the tractor, mm. fine and dandy. But if you have a pair of oxen, you can do the same thing, only just not as much nor as fast. Uh, an ox can do the same work. And, you know, at the end of the day, when it's no longer eat it, need it, you can always eat them. <laughs> <laughs> Canada and the United States are a little different in that regard. Uh, in the United States, especially in the New England states, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, mm-hmm. and all down through New York and, and even Michigan and uh, Arizona and so on, oxen are still used traditionally. So even though they go to fairs, they're used on the farm. Here in Nova Scotia, there might be one or two teams in all of Nova Scotia, or all of the Maritimes for that matter, Hmm. that still use oxen traditionally on the farm. Most of the oxen you see in pulling competitions are uh, sort of trained and and bred to do nothing but that. Just pull a a dead weight in a straight line. So they're not that well trained on on the farm. They would not be good animals to you know plow a garden and and mow a field and put your hay in the barn you they just can't do that uh, american oxen are much better trained than canadian oxen uh in a lot of rough places like maine and vermont and nova scotia you had to use oxen you couldn't use horses because they were unstable and they tended to break their legs oh. very temperamental and you couldn't trust their health so, in other words, horses will cost you money, uh, ox will make you money. In uh, uh, early uh, New England states and in lower Canada and upper Canada was developed by the ox. Here in the Lunenburg County, it was considered the richest area in Canada because of the ox. Hmm. And also because of the connection with shipbuilding as well. I've learned a lot about ox and oxen and the different things that, that they're good for and things that maybe their horses might be better for just by this little conversation that we had today. Yeah, we, we owe a lot to the ox. Uh, we also uh, owe a lot to blacksmithing too. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to um, teach people about both. Carmen, we've had a good talk here. I yes. really enjoyed this time together, and you've taught me a lot in the short uh, amount of time. Very enjoyable, Victor. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you came by. You're very welcome. Uh, listeners, you've been listening to Where We Talk Art, Carmen Legg. I would say he is a celebrity blacksmith from the Oak Island fame and, and a traditional blacksmith who spends time as a volunteer at this very place where we're at right now, which is the the Northville Farm Heritage Northville Center Farm in Heritage Centerville, Center. New Scotia. Carmen, thank you so much. Please support your local artists, and that includes blacksmiths, because they are artists also. And until we meet again, be well. Thanks for listening to the Partnership for the Arts talk show. 